Welcome to The Common Share, a podcast about the opportunities and challenges of developing a cooperative business. The Common Share is produced by Cooperatives First, a business development organization that increases awareness and understanding of the co-op business model and supports cooperative business development in rural and Indigenous communities across Western Canada. For a backgrounder on co-ops and a better way to do business, visit our website, cooperativesfirst.com. The site has great resources and business development tools for groups forming new ventures. I'm Asa Marshall, and I'm joined today by Dr. Dion Poehler. Dr. Poehler is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Centre for Industrial Relations and Human Resources. She was previously assistant professor at the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan and remains a fellow at the Centre for the Study of Cooperatives at the U of S. She was also founding director of Cooperatives First and has published papers on cooperatives, credit unions, governance, and human resources. Dion was a keynote speaker at this year's Saskatchewan Cooperative Association Conference in Saskatoon, the theme of which was Tools for a New Reality, Agility, Innovation, and Sustainability. Her speech was called Five Big Ideas for Leveraging the Cooperative Advantage in a Rapidly Changing World. So thanks, Dion, for being in the studio with us today. Thanks for having me, Asa. So I want to dive into what your presentation was about. You kind of started your speech by summarizing the current dynamic social, economic, and technological landscape that we're, we're currently living in. What are the main factors you think are currently shaping this so-called new reality? Well, I definitely think that technology is the biggest one. Um, advances in technology and, and the way that we use technology have really fundamentally altered the way that we interact with each other. And I also, I think things like virtual currencies and blockchain, blockchain technology, they have enormous potential. And I think they could contribute to financial instability, but they could also provide local communities with uh, greater economic power, control over their own uh, economies. I think there's a lot, been a lot of disruptive technological platforms that have upended entire industries. For instance, how Uber and Airbnb have changed both the taxi and accommodation industries. I also think that social media in general has allowed a lot of political and social controversies to much more easily spill over into our personal and working lives. And I think it's those advancements in social media and the technology around them have allowed social movements to more easily affect the reputation of different organizations. And I think probably at a much more macro level, some of the new realities were simultaneously observing increased competitive pressures on organizations and cooperatives, especially, particularly in mature industries in developed countries. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with liberalization of markets and globalization. But we're also seeing a decline in some of these models as well as ways to solve some of the problems that historically were solved using these kinds of models. So I think that there's a whole variety of different things that are colliding at the same time. And we seem to be at a moment in history, I think, where some political and cultural movements seem to be colliding as well. So I think it's an interesting time and a lot of dynamics are going on at the same time. So you also mentioned that in your speech, you mentioned that organizations like cooperatives generally would adopt more of a risk management approach to mitigate the effects of kind of turmoil going on at the moment. You mentioned that this might be the wrong approach for them. Why why do you think that is? Well, I I think that uh, strategic planning and risk management can be really useful when environments are relatively stable and predictable, um, when we're able to consider all of the possible outcomes, and when we're able to evaluate the likelihood that any of these outcomes might occur. Mm -hmm. 
And adopting a risk management approach can allow us to buffer our cooperative organizations from some of these uh, consequences associated with some of this turmoil or these changes. But it's, it's, it's precisely because periods with this kind of turmoil are uncertain unpredictable and and affected by the interaction of so many factors that we can't control at so many different levels that it becomes really hard or almost impossible to predict ahead of time the ways they might affect our organizations. And so I think even with a risk management framework, if we're able to come up with plans in advance, these plans are more likely to fall apart or just face incredible challenges in the implementation of them especially if the assumptions that we used when we kind of developed some of these ideas around risk mitigation are no longer accurate or hold. And I think the other reason why risk management frameworks can sometimes be problematic in periods of rapid change or uncertainty is because organizations often default to finding the most efficient way to deal um, in the short run with, with problems and controversies, which again, I think works okay in stable environments, but can backfire in unstable environments. So I think in times of turmoil or great change or periods of volatility, I think one of the more important things is to develop and select leaders and others inside the organization that have competencies like systems thinking, tolerance for ambiguity, and also I think the ability to engage in real time and ongoing conflict resolution in our organizations. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll just take a second too to to back up and say what um, when you talk about a risk management framework, like what are some of the traditional approaches that would be in that? Well, I think things like thinking um, traditional tools associated with thinking around all of the possible outcomes that may occur if we adopt a particular approach or some of the possible stakeholders or controversies that could arise so who's who might be opposed to um, a particular approach what kinds of challenges economic political um, legal challenges we might face or have to try and work around or mitigate Um, and I think again in times of stability it's it's relatively easy to come up with a, a set of risks that we could kind of think about what's the possibility or the likelihood that they would occur. Um, and I think uncertain in times of uncertainty, it's entirely possible that it could be something we couldn't have even imagined just because everything's changing so quickly and there's so many variables at play. But I also think just even in terms of the plan that as it's being implemented, things are changing um, just in real time. And so sort of sitting down and thinking about a plan ahead of time and all of the possible factors just becomes really difficult. I remember recently hearing an interview with Mark Zuckerberg and talking about how when he conceived of Facebook in his dorm room in 2004, he never could have imagined that someday he'd be trying to mitigate the impact it was having on presidential elections. So that's maybe the kind of unforeseen um, risk that's... Absolutely. I, I, I can almost guarantee where there would be no way that Facebook could have ever thought that the Russian government <laughs> would have had anything, would have had such an impact now on, on the valuation of their company and the regulators that are, uh, and, and the scrutiny that Facebook is facing in the public and by regulators. I don't think there's any way they, they could have predicted that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, maybe we'll get to then talking about your five big ideas. And the, the first one of which you say is that good governance is more than strategic planning, oversight and risk management. So what is good governance about? Well, I think good governance is ultimately also, especially in times of uncertainty, about cultivating the organization's purpose and values. Um, And I think that that's so important as part of good governance because that is what helps a group of otherwise independent 
people uh, and organizational stakeholders navigate the uncertainty that the organization faces and helps them also to make sense of their own contributions and their their place in the world um, by giving them a shared and coherent identity that they can fall back on. Because it's really an organization's purpose and values that shape people's actions and behaviors. And I think the important thing to emphasize here is that a lot of people say, well, how isn't that just part of strategic planning, developing a mission and values? And it isn't just about developing a mission statement and a list of values as the first part of all classic strategic planning exercises. It's it's asking questions like, do people in the cooperative organization outside the board and senior management even know what the mission and values are? <laughs> mm-hmm. Do they know what it means for them and their place in the organization, in the cooperative And are there any policies and practices inside the organization themselves that are in direct conflict with the purpose and values that the cooperative is trying to sort of portray and the the purpose that's guiding it? That are are any of those causing confusion? Mm -hmm. So I think that that, that's what I mean um, when I say it's not just it's not just as part of the beginning part of a strategic planning exercise. It's a it's a fundamental discussion and to, to discuss how that actually translates into the actions and behaviors of people in the organization. Mm-hmm. And you said something interesting in, in your address that I liked, that, that cooperatives that are not active players in shaping social environments around them in times of uncertainty will then be forced to adapt to the environments that others have built. And I'm wondering if Absol- you elaborate on that. Absolutely. And I think a great example of that would have been um, when the credit union system faced the possibility that they weren't going to be allowed to use the word bank or banking, mm-hmm. which would really have a massive impact on their on their bottom line, just in terms of changing marketing and all of these kinds of things. But people people don't separate the act of banking or the. I mean, when I was growing up in a small town in rural Saskatchewan, the bank was the credit union. We use those words interchangeably, mm-hmm. and I think like this was a an example of something where some sort of uh, regulation was being set at a higher level, and if the credit unions hadn't jumped very quickly in a collective response uh, trying to explain to the government why this was so problematic, they would have to then accept this regulation that could really undermine what they do mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And so that's a great example, I think, of, of the fact that organizations, especially cooperatives that just sit back and, and sort of allow others to shape the regulatory, the political, the competitive environment, the cultural environment around them, they may end up having to just either respond or uh, be forced to adhere to the rules that other people set, as opposed to being active players in setting those rules. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good example. I don't know if credit unioning would have been such a, yeah. a verb that rolls off the tongue either. So that was <laughs> no, a bit I of a don't think one. so. <laughs> okay, so your big idea number two was to avoid falling into the growth trap. So can you explain what does that mean? What's the growth trap? Well, I think the first of all the the growth trap is first of all assuming that growth is always good. I think that's one of the big pieces that I consider as part of the growth trap. And I think second part of the growth trap is defining growth by metrics that might undermine other important goals and objectives of the cooperative. So for instance, by some standard ways of measuring growth are by increased market share, expansion of products and services that are offered, um, or the just the accumulation of assets through mergers, consolidations, and acquisitions. And there's been a lot of uh, consolidations and mergers that have happened in the, especially in uh, more mature 
cooperative industries in retailing in the credit union sector in Canada over the last few decades. Um, and this is understandable because a lot of cooperatives do face pressures to create efficiencies and economies of scale, especially as they're facing increased competition. But they need to be more careful to think outside the box when it comes to growth and not to think about growth in the same way that investor-owned firms do. So an example or sort of an illustration that growth in a co-op, the way that it can be more problematic is, is that it can often come at the expense of a close relationship, the co-op's relationship to its membership and their communities. Mm-hmm. Because the membership becomes increasingly diverse and geographically spread out, and I think that makes it more difficult to meet members' members' needs. And not all co-ops offer products and services that require these close personal connections with their members. But also in large co-ops, we have to remember that individual members will have less voice in governance. And the complexity of the co-op increases as it grows. And this requires possibly special skills and expertise in governance that may or may not be available in the current membership. And I think the other challenge as co-ops grow is that they often end up then relying more on senior management rather than the membership to drive the objectives of the organization. So growth, I don't want uh, people to think that growth or that I think that growth is necessarily bad, but co-op leaders just need to be more careful to think about their assumptions about growth and tie the conversations about growth at the governance level, especially with their membership, and the metrics they choose to measure growth to the purpose and values of the cooperative. And I also think that co-ops might think about more innovative options for growth and ways to achieve economies of scale, for instance, through things like cooperation among cooperatives, which is one of the seven principles of cooperatives. And I think that's historically been the way that co-ops have been able to find ways to centralize some things for efficiency, but localize other things for effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And so on to idea number three, that the short-term business case for diversity is weak, and that it downplays the hard work required to foster inclusiveness in organizations. And diversity, especially on uh, boards of directors, is something we've, we've talked on this podcast a bit before. So yeah, I'd love to hear your take on diversity's place in, in co-ops and what you mean by this one. So as I I think I said um, earlier, increased diversity of members um, does make it more difficult to address all members' needs. And so co-ops that grow and that get more diverse members uh, face a harder time trying to address a diverse set of needs. But I think diversity can help co-ops in two ways, especially when times are more uncertain. And one is that diversity of ideas, especially so if you have a more diverse membership, you will get more diverse ideas and perspectives. And and especially if you bring that into the governance discussions for the cooperative, that can improve the quality of discussions and debates and ideas that are considered and ways to move forward. And I think that in times of uncertainty, you need access to lots of different opinions and ideas, people who come to view problems with different sets of assumptions. And I think when we talk about diversity, we often think demographic diversity. So I I think to say something about that, with regard to demographic diversity, there's evidence that having someone who looks different from us in the room forces us to work harder to think. And we're less likely to just rely on instinct or because of an acceptance that this is the way we've always done things around here. So it can be important in that regard as well. But it's, it's also important to remember that inclusiveness isn't just tokenism based on demographic characteristics. And and it requires a lot of time and effort because it requires breaking down barriers to participation for all people. And some of these barriers that need to be broken down may not even exist in our own cooperatives. They may actually exist outside because of historical things that have happened in the past. 
So I would say that diversity, we have to think carefully about diversity because it requires a lot of work and it requires an approach to diversity that is an intent to foster inclusiveness rather than just tokenism. Um, And it goes hand in hand with the ability to deal with conflict as Mm -hmm. well. And Mm -hmm. so we also have to work on developing those competencies. Mm -hmm. And um, you gave a really interesting example about just the fact that there are, there are barriers to diversity and especially in your example for women entering maybe non-traditional fields. And I really like the sort of extreme example that you gave in your talk. So if you'd like to give that in the context of this discussion. Yeah. So I I always give this example uh, because oftentimes we hear people say, well, you know, women just don't want to be engineers, you know, and that's why we don't see more women in engineering. And I always give the example that when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be a Catholic priest. And as a woman, as a matter of organizational policy, according to the church, I was not able to be Mm -hmm. a Catholic priest. And so um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say because there are so or no female Catholic priests that women must not want to be Catholic priests. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a great example because it shows how in a really obvious way how structural barriers can result in uh, not a lot of diversity or in certain groups being somewhat barred from being able to, you know, make it into positions of authority in organizations. And and so we always have to be aware of those barriers and and those barriers can exist within our organizations in, in terms of our own current policies and approaches, but they can also exist because of social norms or historical conditions that have led to certain groups being underrepresented. And so Thinking about those uh, structural barriers is also really important if we're trying to foster inclusiveness in Mm -hmm. our organizations. Mm -hmm. And then um, to get to idea number four, and it's something you were just bringing up sort of also in the, um, the diversity conversation, is that organizations need to embrace conflict which seems maybe counterintuitive because it's something a lot of people will shy away from. So why do organizations need to uh, embrace conflict? Well, and again, I think in times of uncertainty, conflict is going to be present and it's going to be much more manifest in times of uncertainty than it is when times are stable and people know what to expect and they know what the rules are. But when the rules are changing and norms are changing and we haven't settled into a new normal, most of us don't handle that period very well. Um, And I think that's because most of us are are taught to avoid conflict. We're taught to institutionalize it and to manage it rather than to attempt to actually dig deep and try and find what the sources of the conflict are. And I think that's especially true of Canadians. Um, And, you know, we're taught to be very polite and to, you know, try not to offend people. And I think that, you know, as a result, we then think that conflict, anything that's conflict might be perceived as as abuse or as, as offensive, as opposed to thinking about conflict as a way of highlighting what are the sources, the key underlying sources of, of what's causing these problems? And I, and I think all organizations struggle, struggle a lot with how to deal with conflict inside the organization. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how perhaps when, when you're having conflict out in the open, at least it isn't operating in sort of insidious ways under the, the surface in organizations. So is it better to, to air those things out or to sort of let them fester, I guess? Well, my, I think that's, uh, my opinion is that the conflict will eventually uh, manifest itself anyways. Um, and so to uh, try to just avoid 
um, dealing with the issue will just make it worse in the long run. And so it sometimes it does need some time. You, sometimes things that are very raw or that people are still struggling to work through, you don't need to kind of try and get right to the heart of the issue right away. Sometimes people just need to vent or there needs to be some just discussion without immediately trying to rush to a solution. And I think that that's in times of uncertainty, to try and avoid the immediate tendency we all have to try and just find a solution. Sometimes just the act of of disagreeing and engaging each other and seeing how passionate people are about different ideas and opinions, sometimes that's all that's needed at that moment. Um, and to avoid the tendency we all have to rush to try and solve the problem. And I think it was a, there was a quote from uh, Chesterton back in 1932 that said, it isn't that they can't see the solution, it is that they can't see the problem. And I think that's something that in times of uncertainty we might want to keep in the back of our mind. Yeah, uh-huh. And then so on to the last uh, idea, number five, cooperation and self-interest are two sides of the same coin. So what do you mean by that? Well, we're, we are hardwired for survival and we're also hardwired for cooperation. And we ultimately survived because we cooperated, at least in the long run. So uh, in the short run, self-interested behavior really can undermine our organizations. And the free rider problem in cooperatives has long been a source of concern. In fact, it's one of the reasons the principles have been set up the way they are. The free rider problem is when others act in opportunistic ways, and that can end up causing a bit of a vicious cycle. So if, if others observe, for instance, that some are getting ahead, some people in the organization or elsewhere are getting ahead by not cooperating, then they'll stop cooperating themselves. And I think that, that this is one reason why it's so important that we structure policies and practices in our co-ops to tie individual incentives and rewards to the goals of the collective. And, and also, to, again, to be careful about what metrics we pick that we want to focus on, because what gets measured and rewarded gets done in organizations. And people will often focus on the things that get measured at the expense of other things that help build resilient and effective organizations uh, that can weather these periods of uncertainty. And these things are often more difficult to measure as well. Mm-hmm. And so any ideas about how we how we do that, how we tie individual and group self-interest to the collective interest in organizations? Are there strategies for that? Well, I think one way we have to, um, I've done a few papers on the unintended consequences, for instance, of pay for performance incentives, individual pay for performance incentives. I think that pay for performance incentives do have their place. And uh, I think that they can work really well to enhance productivity and improve efficiencies in, again, times of stability. When we kind of know how, what turn, how things turn out depending on what people do, you know, the environment isn't that volatile. So we can kind of predict how, how these things will work, how these incentives will work. But in times of uncertainty, those things can backfire. And I think especially people get also very anxious in times of uncertainty and they tend to, anxiety leads to people kind of closing in rather than opening. And so I think if there's all of the ways that we can try and get people to work together um, and to not polarize, to not fracture, to not default into their own groups and their own silos, I think that that's the way that we encourage organizations to, or that we help organizations weather times of uncertainty. So any kinds of practices I think that can, especially people management practices that can bring people together rather than um, having them compete in times of uncertainty is, is, is the best approach. 
um, or at least one of the better approaches. And again, it depends on the organization, but I think that uh, most organizations would probably benefit from thinking more systematically about how they might do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finally, especially speaking specifically about cooperatives, how do you think co-ops can incorporate these ideas given this new reality that they're facing? Well, I think, you know, the first thing to say is that, you know, co-ops really don't need to reinvent the wheel. And I think while other organizations can also navigate uncertainty by considering how to work with some of these ideas, and many of the great uh, organizations of history have done so, I think the co-op model is the only model of organization that it's structured to incorporate these ideas, even during times of stability. Um, And if you go to the, again, the International Cooperative Association's website, outlines a clear and coherent identity statement for co-ops. And that identity statement directly acknowledges the interdependence of the economic and social needs and aspirations of individuals. It recognizes the autonomy of individuals within the collective, while at the same time tying individual interest to collective interests and goals. And I think it it does highlight that uh, the organization, the co-op, as all organizations are, they're they're both social and economic institutions. And the co-op just acknowledges that much more directly. You know, and it has, you know, the co-op values highlight the way that um, we tie individual self-interest to collective values. And it also has, you know, principles around how we do that, how we put these, this purpose, this mission, this identity, and these values into practice. So there's actually pragmatic ways that, you know, the international cooperative movement has identified through the principles that we can actually put these, this purpose and these values into action. And I would say that not all co-ops succeed in doing this, though. So even though the model provides the framework, not all co-ops effectively leverage um, sort of the benefits of the, of the model. Because as I said earlier, the competencies that are required for effective leadership in times of uncertainty are tolerance for ambiguity, ability to engage in continuous conflict resolution and systems thinking. And these aren't qualities that we develop well or encourage and reward in almost anywhere in society, in, in our education system or in our organizations. Mm-hmm. They're really difficult to measure and they take time and experience to develop. And so um, I think while co-ops have to learn to embrace uncertainty as the time when they're forced, especially more mature co-ops, are forced to evolve and progress, we also shouldn't forget that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that all of these challenges I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, these challenges we're facing today aren't new. And uh, neither is the need for engaging in collective action to solve some of these problems and and more social models of economic organization. They've really been faced by people, different societies and groups at different points in history, and we have the advantage of being able to learn from how they did it. So I think Co-ops First is, is doing some interesting stuff in this regard in terms of finding stories and telling stories about how other people have solved similar problems at different points in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really trying to uh, to use the platform that we have to highlight cool ways that the people are starting co-ops and using it to solve both local problems and and more you know widely spread. So, yeah, I think it's a it's it's been a pretty cool process. Yeah, you guys are doing a great job, and I I really um, I really think it's some of the most innovative uh, stuff happening in co-op development is 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 what Co-ops First is working on. Yeah, well, thanks for that, Dion. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, that was the last of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Or 
No, thank you for having me. This was a, this was really fun, actually. Yeah, great. <laughs> it was great to have you. Thanks so much. Uh, okay, so I guess we'll end it there. <laughs>